You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. Hoaxes, scams, and bogus content are always lurking on the internet, but 2024 is primed for a new level of nonsense. This is the first U.S. presidential campaign since Donald Trump used lies about a rigged election to try and hold on to the White House. And despite state and federal charges for trying to overturn the election, he's only doubled down on false claims on the campaign trail. Meanwhile, social media companies have reduced funding to their teams that are battling disinformation, and we're entering an era of AI-generated deepfakes and tools that make manufacturing disinformation easier than ever. Now, this can all feel hopeless, and I don't blame you for feeling that way. I go to the dark place, too, sometimes. But talking to my next guest did take the edge off my anxiety a little bit by introducing a set of simple tools to help sort fact from fiction. And these are kinds of things researchers and journalists do every day, but I've never seen them laid out so straightforwardly and in such a shareable format. Mike Caulfield is a research scientist at the University of Washington's Center for an Informed Public. He and his co-author Sam Weinberg wrote Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions on What to Believe Online. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for being on the show. It's great to be here. You've come up with a model for how people can uh, process and use information online more effectively, and it's called SIFT. It's something that I think a lot of academics and maybe journalists have heard of, but a lot of listeners will be coming to this for the first time. What is the SIFT model, and how can people apply it in their lives? SIFT is a, a set of simple things to do. We call them moves when you encounter new information online. The first S stands for stop. Stop is just when you come across something and you feel strong emotion, surprise, justification, indignation, whatever you feel. Stop and ask yourself this first question. Is, is this what I think it is? Am I looking at Do I know what I'm looking at here? That's where most people go wrong. And then the other three steps are about building up the context that may have been stripped from that thing in front of you before you start to think more deeply about it. So I, in SIFT, is investigate the source. We're talking about quickly checking to see if this is from maybe a, a, a major reporter or a comedian. <laughs> uh, if this is, for example, from a, a known academic or, say, from Russian state media. Quick checks like that to understand, is this, is this source where I would ideally get this information from? The F is find better coverage. And one of the things that we have discovered with students is very often when something will arrive in front of a student from somewhere, they kind of latch on to the thing that landed on their doorstep. So it came from a certain source. It came from a certain person. They're interested in the topic, but they also don't move off and try to ask themselves, ideally, where would I get this from? And so find better coverage is, is the simple practice of maybe opening another tab if you're on your phone, just uh, hitting that search bar and finding a better source for the information you care about. The web is really good at surfacing things that we care about. It's not always good at giving us the best first source for that thing. And finally, T is uh, trace. It's uh, trace claims, quotes, and media to the original context. A lot of what we find is that things are, it's not really about whether they're true or false in, in this very narrow sense. Lots of times what we find on the internet is things that have been taken out of context. So you'll find a little snippet of a quote. You go and you find the full quote and you find out it's not what you think it is. But again, a short set of things to do is we find that people start the thinking before they have done the minimal doing. Hmm. 
I'm just going to say that again. So SIFT is stop, investigate, find better coverage and trace claims. And a lot of what we see on social media, because these these sites are designed to monetize our outrage, to monetize our emotions when we first see a headline or we first see whatever's being shared, a video. How hard is it for people to do that first step, to stop? To stop is probably the most important part at all. And one of the reasons why, you know, some people look at SIFT and they say, well, you're saying do 60 seconds of checking, doing 90 seconds of, of checking. Wouldn't it be better if people did 10 minutes of checking? And one of the reasons why we try to give people a simple set of strategies that they can build on if they want is because people are very impatient. They want to share the thing, right? They want to move on. If you tell people, look, you've got to spend 10 minutes before you share something, there's a there's a very sort of easy choice for them there. There's sort of the immediate gratification of sharing, which is like two seconds away. And then there's perhaps the delayed gratification of sharing 10 minutes away. And that's not a good deal for most people. So one of the things that we try to do is make this stuff, stuff that people can do very, very quickly. And what we find is when people realize that an awful lot of the stuff that they're looking at can be checked this quickly, they do it more. The book says early on that the problem with misinformation spreading isn't often due to people thinking too little. Sometimes it's due to people who are thinking too hard about certain topics. How can thinking about a claim too hard be dangerous? Yeah, so so it's all about what you do when, right? So if you think about arriving at something you see on the internet, one of the things that we found was that students would very quickly dive into the question of, is this true or false? And they would skip this important question of, is this even what I think it is? And so that if you if you do that, if you look at something and you're looking at a video, for example, that's supposedly ballot stuffing in the 2020 election, and you don't stop to ask yourself, is this even from 2020? Is this even from the U.S.? That's where people go astray. What people often do is they see that video and they start to ask themselves these questions like, is this plausible? Could this happen? If this did happen, should I be upset about it? They, should, they start thinking in this way that is kind of getting ahead of the first question, which is, is this thing I'm looking at what I think it is, or is this something maybe entirely different? So let's use an example for folks. I see a post on Instagram. It's gone viral. It says that, heaven forbid, Matrix actor Keanu Reeves has died in a snowboarding accident. This is some generic celebrity gossip page. Not one that I recognize, but it looks like it was a suggested post in my feed. I immediately feel emotion when I see Keanu Reeves in a snowboarding accident. But what should I do first? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the easy thing is the type for that is to type Keanu Reeves into your browser and see if what you get is Keanu Reeves at a bunch of Hollywood events or doing sort of nice Keanu Reeves things like giving watches to his stunt crew or if you see that Keanu Reeves has died. And, and this is one of the big pieces of thinking through the stuff you see online is big news, you would expect large coverage, right? If something is a big story, if Keanu Reeves dies, there's going to be multiple outlets covering it. You're not going to discover it in, you know, sort of Bob's blog, you know, on some corner of, of the internet. And so again, and, and it's an interesting example, because in, in the book, we talk about how death hoaxes used to spread, you know, on the playground, at work, and, and before the internet, there really wasn't a way to know. It was very difficult to know. 
you would maybe wait to the nightly news and see if it was on the nightly news. But if it was a story like the you know Mikey, the kid in the Life Serial commercial died, you would you would just never you would just never know. You just sit there and go, does that make sense to me? Does Mikey seem like a person that would have died from you know this pop rocks accident people are talking about? Um, <laughs> but. Uh, again, in the current world, we, we're not used to this information abundance. And so uh, very often we jump to the, the sorts of things we would do if we had no access to instant information before doing these simple checks uh, to see what's out there. Yeah. But the Mikey Pop Rocks rumor also takes a long time to spread, right? It's yes. something that's sort of that urban legend that's out there that's percolating this Keanu Reeves and a snowboarding accident thing. It's just an instant. It's an and instant. people are spreading it and, and helping that misinformation flow. Um, I think part of the difficulty there is stopping and doing, you know, the first step of SIFT and leaving the social media site where you first encountered mm-hmm. this information, going to a browser and using the search engine to double check your work before you go back into Instagram to share. That's a tough sell for a lot of people. I mean, how do you get folks, especially in a year like this, when we're going to just be seeing misinformation proliferating like crazy, to do that extra amount of pausing and looking? Simple things matter a lot. So everything that you can simplify, everything that you can take down from five seconds to two seconds, from uh, eight steps to three, you know, that that is where the difference is. So you know, for example, one of the things that we do when people are looking at organizations, like we talk about investigate the source, you find an organization, maybe it's the American College of Pediatricians or something like that. And you're like, is this a, is this a respected medical organization? We have people type in the name of the organization and then just a space in Wikipedia. And if there's a Wikipedia article on that, that's going to float to the top of your search results. So you're not sort of climbing through a whole bunch of search results that maybe don't answer the question about this organization, right? And so simple things like if you're if you're looking for a fact check, typing in something about the term, but then just literally putting right after it the word fact check, a bare keyword, right? So we use this bare keyword approach with a lot of things. Uh, when you're on your phone, it, is, it can be a little more difficult. One of the things that we find is that the phones sort of lock you into that current app that you're yeah. in. So you've got to go and you've got to get out of it. You've got to get back. What I'll say is once you actually get adept on your phone with checking these things, you can actually do it quite easily. It becomes sort of second nature. But you do sometimes need personal guidance. Yeah. I want to zero in on a story that you highlight in the book. And it's a little more nuanced than whether Keanu Reeves has died in a snowboarding accident or not. It's about tropical spiders and this invasion of tropical spiders on the East Coast. The headline is really nightmare fuel. Millions of palm-sized flying spiders to swarm the East Coast. Now that made my skin crawl. It made my adrenaline go up and it would likely make me you know, copy that link and send it to a partner or maybe even share it on social media. This is a New York Post article. So when somebody comes across this tropical spider invasion story, how should they react? Like, what do you do to gauge if this is just sensational or if they actually need to go out and buy a flamethrower? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a great example of this idea of, is this what I think it is? Uh, In this case, right, what you'll find if you do some, some basic checking is that the the story is true. These are bigger spiders. They are, uh, due to, I think, uh, climate changes, 
But all the things that you would fear about them don't turn out to be true, right? These these are not spiders that are going to bite you in, in any way. They actually have some beneficial properties. When you see it, the important thing, again, is you have this reaction. And, and this is a piece that people miss. What you're actually fact-checking when you do a personal fact-check is you're fact-checking the appropriateness of your reaction, right? So what you're doing is you're looking at this thing. It says these spiders are coming up. You get a fight or flight You get a fight feeling. or flight sort of feeling, right? When you go and you type in the Juro spiders, again, you find what you find is a bunch of different articles that maybe don't have as clickbaity headlines that tell you the story of these spiders. You find out that these spiders are, in fact, uh, not going to be the the problem you you think they are. Um, but that's a case where just finding a better source is going to give you that better frame for it. And it's it's also you know as I say, it's also a case where if you were to look at that particular article, you might say, well, the article is true, right? But your reaction to it, because you didn't fully understand like what it was, your reaction was the thing that, that was maybe not appropriate. And I'm not, I mean, you could also say the headline was clickbaity and so forth. I mean, there's a bunch of, uh, of stuff around that. Um, but that's what we're really doing when we do this. We, uh, you know, part of the misunderstanding, I think, about Fact checking that 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 uh, personal fact checking that that we've gotten into uh, is that people are checking the relationship of you know you have seventeen facts and you check the relationship of the seventeen facts to the world and if each one has a relationship to the world then this article is a hundred percent true and if you know half of them do then it's fifty and that's not actually what's happening what's happening is you see something you know why it's compelling you go out you find the bigger story then you come back to it and you say. Does this still feel compelling? Now, if you found the bigger story and you come back and you're like, no, this is still super scary to me, then you haven't been misled, right? Or you haven't misled yourself. On the other hand, if you go out, you find the greater context, you come back and you look at this and you're like, ah, this doesn't seem as notable anymore. Then perhaps you've either been misled or perhaps uh, misled yourself. Let's talk about Wikipedia because you're uh, using this yeah. as a contextual tool for folks when they stop and they look for greater context on a, a specific story or social media post. You know, many students, for example, are counseled not to use Wikipedia as a source in their high school papers because it's crowdsourced and it's difficult to, you know, trace where all the information comes from, although most posts have a nice set of links and bibliography. Is it a reliable source for context in this kind of world? So the question is always, you know, is it a good source for what, right? And Wikipedia, as it currently stands, Wikipedia is one of the best sources for getting quick, broad context on a subject. And one of the ways that you can know that is if you look at fact checkers, when fact checkers are checking something, one of their first stops is always Wikipedia. Because again, broad context on a subject, lots of links that they can follow, find out more. It's one of the ways that you can quickly sort of figure out the questions you should be asking about something. There's two things about Wikipedia that I think that people react to. One is a lot of what formed people's idea of Wikipedia was what Wikipedia was in, say, 2006 or 2008. People still say, oh, Wikipedia, the, 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 the encyclopedia anybody can edit. That's actually not true. Like highly, for example, highly contested 
articles are locked to uh, only uh, contributors who have uh, demonstrated a, a pattern of uh, edits over time that makes them trusted. The things that people put up that are wrong get spotted and taken down uh, very, very, very quickly. There's a whole sort of architecture around Wikipedia to make sure that things are sourced, to make sure that, especially for the sorts of articles that you know, suffer from vandalism. These these things are are, are fixed quickly. That these things are well sourced. And so in twenty in two thousand six, I think I would steer clear of Wikipedia in two thousand six. But you know what? It's it's twenty twenty three. I think people forget the amount of time that has gone um, by and all the different projects and mechanisms that Wikipedia has put in place since those since those early days. So that's that's point one. The second thing is that people often say, well, you shouldn't cite Wikipedia. And I agree with that. You shouldn't cite Wikipedia because Wikipedia is an encyclopedia, right? It's not, you know, if you're doing a research paper, you don't really want to say, as Wikipedia said, you want to go and you want to look at those original sources. But used to get the context around a subject, I'll tell you this, if you're a researcher in a field somewhere in academe and you know that field very well, but you you have to look at maybe a, a, a research area that's slightly to the side of that. No one in the first place a researcher goes to, to sort of broaden their understanding. So they go to Wikipedia because they need that first broad treatment of the subject uh, to figure out, um, again, what are the questions I should be asking uh, and so forth. So, um, so yeah, uh, Wikipedia is, I think, trustworthy in the ways that people use it to get context. I would not cite Wikipedia on a research project, but I will tell you that there's an awful lot of research projects that begin with someone starting by looking at a Wikipedia page. Let's talk about search results, because anyone who's used Google lately knows that a lot of the uh, functionality of search is starting to degrade, and you're not getting the quality of results that you would have gotten maybe five years ago. We are seeing a lot of generative AI flooding kind of junk information and, and junk results in search engines. What's your recommendation for optimizing search in today's day and age? Yeah. So uh, we go into this in a bit of detail. The, the first thing is to learn some simple tricks that make your search more effective. One of the things I mentioned is if you want to fact check, right, put fact check just as a bare keyword, you know, in, in the search is going to, it's going to pop some of those fact checks to the top rather than, say, you know, weaving them somewhere else in those search results. So little things like that can mean a lot. Making sure that you don't have a biased search term that's returning a bunch of stuff. You know, if you go and you, you say, you know, give me 10 reasons why X is bad, it's going to try to give you 10 reasons why X is bad. Again, let me like lean in on that okay. because I think that this is really important. Yeah. If your search keywords are leaning in a certain direction, you're going to get results that feed what you're looking for. So if you say, for example, are soda taxes good, you're going to get information that supports soda taxes yeah. good. If you say are soda taxes bad, the information will be different. The information will be different. Yeah. I mean, Google is trying to do a couple things at once. One is it's trying to pull the information that it maybe thinks is authoritative. Two is trying to give you the information it thinks you're looking for. And if I say soda tax is good, one of the things it may think I want is a bunch of reasons why soda taxes are good. If I say soda tax is bad, I may think that. And so thinking about that, 
what what is it what is it that you actually want and how do you signal to google that that's what you want the flood of ai in in some of these low quality search results and also i i think the 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 less the less talked about issue of sort of the growing sort of paywallization of a lot of resources that for a long time allowed you know two or three free hits but now now don't you know i think that's a that's a problem too and one of the things that we caution people is to have uh, click restraint. And, and again, when you're trying to find that better source using Google, to go and not click on the first couple of things, but look look through the full first page. First question you ask, actually, when you get a search result back is, given what I think I want and given what is on this search page, like, am I going in the wrong direction? If you search like a, a, a pressing political issue and you're getting back nothing but Pinterest links, like something has gone horribly wrong with that search, right? So you're going to want to reform that search. But the second thing is you sometimes you put in a search result and there, you know, it's a mix of stuff that looks kind of like garbage and some stuff that might be good. Spending a little initial time, not much, but a little initial time on that page determining what the better link might be is going to pay off, right? Uh, and, and actually, I've, I've uh, uh, worked a bit with uh, Google on these little vertical dots that you find on every result on a Google search page. You click these vertical dots next to each one. It'll tell you a little bit. If there's a Wikipedia page on it, it'll tell you what the source is about. Spend the time to, you know, shop around for which link you're going to click. We call this click restraint. Shop around for which link you're going to click before you commit. Maybe even go to page two of the links. Whoa. Oh, and see if there's see if there's something there. I think click restraint is sort of a theme, right, yeah. of what we're talking about today, because part of your SIFT model, again, is stop, investigate, find better coverage and trace claims. How fast is this stuff changing for you as an information researcher? I mean, again, generative AI is something that is just coming on the scene in the past year or so for the general consumer, and it's radically altering our information ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it's it's changing fast in some ways. In some ways, it's, it's not changing as fast as you think. AI is a good example of that. I think there's a worry that AI will undo a lot of the advice that we give uh, students and citizens and professionals. And if the advice we were giving them was oh, well, look for six fingers or something. AI is eventually going to produce humans with five fingers. I, I think I'm, you know, I, I, I have some doubts about the overall future of AI, but I think it will eventually be able to produce photographs, fake photographs with people with the right number of fingers. I think that's going to happen. So if that's the level that you're giving people, this sort of checklist thing that we were talking about earlier, if that's the level of advice you're giving to people, that stuff changes quite fast. But what's interesting about AI is that, it brings you back to the basics in 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 a in a really fund in a really fundamental way. When you can, if, if AI gets very good at pictures, for example, or, or or text, right? When you look at the picture, what is going to be the most important question you ask when you look at a, when you look at a perfect picture that may have been produced by an AI? It's going to be who took this, where was it taken, and if this was taken somewhere, like is there a record of it? Right. Because um, we've already seen generative AI making up fake journalists. Yeah. Ma- making up fake. You know, <laughs> I, so this is this is the, the thing we come back to. AI is going to bring us back uh, to this question of provenance. 
in this 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 issue that a big way that we know whether something is real is by understanding where and when it was produced and being able to find a record of that. Or a big way that we would know that a person is a real expert is that other people that you know in that network should be referencing that. We talk about the difference between cheap signals and expensive signals. And cheap signals are things like you produce this picture-perfect photo, you're able to use AI to mimic a scholarly tone. These are all relatively cheap. Anybody can do them. Expensive signals are very often about, about time and about social connection. It is, hard, it is, is easy to produce an article label it as something produced in 2013 and put it out there. It is hard to to go back in time and build a record of people referencing that from 2013 on, right? History is an expensive signal. Social connection is also an expensive signal. It is, it is easy to present somebody as having uh, worked at all these places, know all these people, but it is hard to get a bunch of people who are known to have referenced this person or to know this person or to cite this person, right? And so that those are the things that we have to look at. We have to ask, how hard would this be to fake? And the things that are hard to fake are time and, and connections to people. Hmm. What about the risk of people just saying, I don't trust anything anymore? because of the amount of effort being put into misleading people and selling them something, and also just the hallucinations that are coming from Mm. generative AI, is there a risk that people simply throw up their hands and say, I have no trust in any institutions and any information that's being given to me? This is this is all, you know, it's all fake. And, And what does that mean for our society? Yeah, I mean, so I think there's a big risk of that. People have talked about this era as a post-truth era, right? Oh, people don't care about truth. People don't care about truth. I got to say, when I look at what's going on, it doesn't feel that way at all. It feels to me like people are sharing more evidence for what they believe than people have ever shared before in their life. People are spending more time looking into issues. Maybe to prove they're right a lot of the time, but people are spending more time looking into issues, defending what they believe, finding evidence than I think ever before in history. So it doesn't, it feels to me like, it feels to me that people do care about this stuff in, in, in a certain way. One of the things that we try to do in our work with students is we make sure that they're seeing a lot of you know, we call the, the examples, we give them prompts. We, we try to make sure a lot, a lot of those are true, right? To make sure that the, the idea here isn't just go around debunking the world, right? The idea is really, if you think about it, what you would like to do is you would like to get better true information about the world. And then you would like to share that true information with other people who you think it might inform. And so that's, that's, always, that's always the goal. I, I think, though... That what's amazing to me is for all of this, for all of the sort of high-tech deception, most of what we see is actually pretty easy (laughs) to check. And there's a way in which checking stuff and finding it true or finding finding it false or finding it slightly miscontextualized or finding it very miscontextualized, in in getting to that relatively quickly, I think, builds more 
trust. It, it seems weird, right? Like this is a book about, oh, you've got to check all these things. You think that would erode trust. But I think when people see how transparent a lot of the trickery that people fall for is, it's, 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 it's like a mile wide and it's, it's like three millimeters deep. When they see how transparent this is, I think it does end up building, building trust. You know, ultimately, people are trying to find good information. And so I do think that one of the things we, we always have in mind is, you know, how do we get people to that? For example, we talk about critical ignoring, which is just about this issue that a lot of things come across your radar. And, you know, there's just not enough information yet. And maybe... Just wait until there's better information instead of, like, frantically refreshing. Critical ignoring, everybody. I really, <laughs> that I mean, that's something that I think everybody, not just journalists, not just those of us in the information field, can use in their lives. There's so much noise that comes across. There's so much that's trying to grab you and make you angry or make you upset or make you fearful. And it's so hard to do nothing in that instant. But what you're saying is that can be a really powerful tool. Yeah, it can be. I mean, one of the things that we always sought to do was to make this stuff simple and fast so you could spend your attention on the information that matters, right? So you think about yourself, you're going through this feed, you're looking at a million things a day, and some of it's nonsense, and some of it's not nonsense, but it's unsubstantiating. We don't know. And no matter how many times you hit that refresh button, you're not going to know for another week, you know. And some of it is actually pretty pressing information that's, that's, that's true, right? And so your, your attention is limited. And this, this is the fundamental shift that's happened in our information environment is information is abundant, right? Information is overwhelming. We're flooded with with purported evidence of, of all these things constantly, seven days a week. But our attention is the limited piece. And so what you're trying to do with SIFT, you're trying to go through this flood of information reaching you, and you're trying to understand what pieces of this deserve my deeper attention. And once you have that deeper attention, I think sometimes people look at this and they say, well, 90-second techniques, two-minute techniques. How can this be deep critical thinking? What happened to deep critical thinking? We need more deep critical thinking. And we do. But the only way you're going to get to deep critical thinking in a world that's flooding you with information uh, is to have quick techniques to figure out what deserves your attention and what doesn't. Otherwise, your attention is going to go in 80 different directions. And what you're going to get is just sort of this vague sense of unease uh, that I think a lot of people feel now. In, in, that where you feel like there's a lot of stuff going on, you're not actually able to get to the bottom of anything. It just it just feels like there's a lot of stuff out there. It's moving very fast. Some of it seems very fishy. In, instead, we want people to get to a place where on specific questions that they care about, they say, actually, I looked at this. It passed the first SIF check. 120 seconds. It looks good. I'm going to spend a little more time over here. There's like the, you know, the 10 square feet that you're occupying at any given time, right? The, the particular information that you're looking for, the particular thing that your, your, you know, your mother or friend shared with you, the particular thing that you shared with your friend or your mother, right? 
And that's a much smaller question, right? That's a much smaller question. I, I think ultimately it's addressable. I think ultimately with a little care, with the right techniques, we can all do a bit better in our corner of the world. And that's not going to solve everything. But I, I think it'll help us reclaim our attention. It will help us learn more about the things we care about. It'll help us, I think, eventually make better decisions for ourselves and the people that we love. And, you know, for me, that's enough of a first step. I'm talking with Mike Caulfield. He's a research scientist at the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public. And along with Sam Weinberg, he's the co-author of Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions on What to Believe Online. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.